Everybody wants to play a bigger part. This is day one. This is day one. Everybody's wondering what we are at heart. This is day one. This is day one. Everybody wants to play a bigger part. Why are you waiting for tomorrow to start? This is day one. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Day One Leadership Podcast. I'm not going to lie. I am absolutely exhausted right now because in preparation for my interview with our guest today, I went to two different gyms this morning to work out just to get myself in the same mindset as our guest. I don't know how she does it because she has represented Canada as an athlete at the Beijing, Athens, and Sydney Paralympics. She has 19 Paralympic medals, including 13 gold, and according to my research, has held 12 different world records. She recently served as the assistant chef de Michon for the 2015 Toronto Parapan American Games and was a member of the broadcast team at both the Sochi and Rio Paralympics. Just a couple of weeks ago, she was inducted into the Canadian Sports Hall of Fame as a member of the class of 2016. I'd like to welcome Stephanie Dixon to the Day One Leadership Podcast. How are you, Stephanie? I'm good, Drew. How are you doing? I'm, well, I'm tired. Um, I don't think I'm ready <laughs> for any kind of high-level athletic competition, but I'm okay. Uh, I did it. I did it like with you in mind, thinking I think she spent the better part of 20 years of her life doing this, uh, maybe more. Exactly. And I. Oh, what's I'm that? Glad I could be a motivation. <laughs> you, I'm glad I could service some motivation, and uh, I'm really, I'm really proud of you for going to two gyms this morning. I was. I did some kickboxing. And uh, I'm pretty certain that uh, if you've never punched anything in your life, that your hands aren't really big fans of it afterwards. So I'm going to try to take notes just by like poking at the keyboard when we do this. (laughs) That sounds awesome. And like, yeah, getting into something new is always great. Our body loves change. It loves new stimulus. And so I always try to do new things as well. So I think you just have motivated me to try boxing. That's awesome. Uh, I got to be honest. If our body loves new things, it is not convincing me of that at this particular moment. But uh, I will take your word for it. Boxing, you can add that to rock climbing, kayaking, world level swimming. Um, Actually, surfing. You surf too, don't you? I do, yes. Surfing is... um something I really, really enjoyed that I'm awful at. <laughs> and I know there's some things I'm very, very, very good at. And, and I try really hard not to just do those things. I think it's easy just to, just to do the things that you're good at to feel good about yourself. But I try on a regular basis to do lots of things I'm really bad at. I think it's good just to keep you humble. And like I said, I really do believe our body loves to do new things. Um, so surfing is something I'm absolutely terrible at, but I really love to do it. Um, I enjoy being in the ocean, being in the water. And, uh, and like I said, just doing something new and that you're not necessarily good at. I bail on a regular basis. The ocean owns my butt all the time. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I like to get out and go for a surf. And you, you live in the perfect place for that. You are a walking, talking. <laughs> you're like the walking, talking, uh, I guess, like tourism brochure for your home. Where, where are you coming from, to from us today? I love doing these things live, but I could not get up to meet you uh, where you lived. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about where you're coming to us from today? Well, I'm, I'm chatting to you from the Yukon, um, where surfing is the number one sport of choice. <laughs> no, not a lot of surfing going on up here. We tend to... Um, 
do sport on water in other mediums. So skiing is massive. We already have tons of snow up here and people are out cross-country skiing, out ice skating on frozen ponds. Um, so while surfing doesn't happen that often, people are often on water. It's just usually frozen. <laughs> well, I'm glad that I could pull you out of the outdoors long enough to to do this because I know that's a big ask of you. So let's dive right in. I, I read an article where you wrote, you said that, there were only two people in the delivery room who didn't panic when you were born, a nurse and the baby who had just been delivered. Could you expand on what you meant by that? Yes. So when, when my mom was pregnant with me, the doctors gave her no indication that her baby would have a disability. And it's just, you know, I don't think any doctors messed up. It was just a reflection of the time. Um, you know, back in the early 80s, we didn't have the same talk technology that we have today. And so my parents had no indication that anything would go wrong in the delivery room. So when I was delivered, um, I came out with one leg and my insides were on the outside. So it was quite a panic because they actually didn't have the resources needed to give me the operations I needed in that specific hospital. So I was going to have to be rushed to another hospital in a helicopter, um, as well as just my parents freaking out that they didn't have the healthy, um, fully limbed baby that they were expecting. Uh, but I had a really incredible experience when I was in my early twenties. Um, I stayed very good friends with the doctor that delivered me over the years. I'm really good friends with her daughter and she ran into the nurse that delivered me 20 years later after I was delivered, they never saw each other again. And this nurse went right up to the doctor that delivered me and said, do you know what happened to that girl? And she was referring to me. And I guess it was a very memorable birth. It was right at the end of this nurse's career. And my doctor was like, funny enough, I actually am very good friends with her and I have stayed in her life. And yes, I do know what happened to her. And the nurse said, I've been collecting newspaper clippings about her swimming career. I just want to know how she's doing. And so my doctor set up a meeting between me and the nurse that delivered me. Um, she was in her 80s at the time that we met because she was in her 60s when she delivered me. And so she got to recount the whole story. So my doctor showed up late to the delivery. She didn't actually make it in time. So that's really? why this nurse delivered me. Um, so it was, it was me and this nurse, uh, a whole bunch of other people in the room, my parents, and she recounted the whole story for me. And so I would like to believe that I stayed calm, but she actually told me, she said, well, everybody else is freaking out and trying to rush me to this helicopter. She said, no, this baby needs to be held by her mother. And I was just obviously crying. I'm a newborn baby, but not freaking out. Just like looking around like, hey, what's going on, guys? <laughs> and she said there was just this life inside of my eyes, this passion and this feeling like everything's okay, guys. No, nothing to worry about here. <laughs> so it was such a beautiful meeting to meet this woman um, and to know that we had this special moment that while everyone else thought, oh my gosh, this is horrible this baby was born without her leg that her and I shared this moment like no 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 we got this this is okay and she handed me to my mother and allowed my mother to hold me before they rushed me to this other hospital so it's a really beautiful moment in my life to be able to meet this woman and hear the story that even though I was born with one leg I I always thought it was okay and I still think it's okay <laughs> 
Wow. So when you say she delivered you, you're not saying, oh, she was in the room. She was the nurse. Like the doctor didn't show up in time and the nurse delivered yeah. you. Wow. Yes. yes. And I, I feel so grateful because I think that the energy you receive as soon as you come into this world makes a big impact on you. So while there was a lot of high emotion going on in the room, the actual first human being to hold me looked at me, we made this connection and we both kind of shared a moment like this is going to be okay. And so it just, it brings me to tears right now, even recounting the story, because that is such a beautiful gift to be given that the first person to see me, I mean, most people, when they see me feel sorry for me, they think, oh, what an awful thing. Even now, like 30 years later, until they meet me and realize, oh, there's nothing to feel sorry about. This girl's absolutely fine. But to know that the first person to ever interact with me on this earth gave me that energy and that message, like, you're going to be okay. I honestly think it made a huge impact into the rest of my life. Do you ever think that maybe most of the things you've done in your life have been a result of you kind of had to match that level for the rest of your life? I mean, if you come in like that, you can't spend the rest of your life not kicking ass. I guess maybe that's the way it goes, right? (laughs) Right? (laughs) You do have have a flair for the dramatic, Miss Dixon. I know. I really do. (laughs) It's awesome. So let's, let's talk about the life that, that then started to unfold. I, I started asking people this question. If, if you had to tell the story of your life so far, if it had to be written in three chapters, what would you title each of the three chapters? What? Oh my gosh. That is a, that's a tough one. Okay. So the three chapters, um, okay. The first one would be titled um, Mermaid on Land because I, as a child, always thought I was a mermaid and I was just put on land by accident. And I always felt super beautiful and confident. And I did everything as a kid, absolutely everything. I played softball, a girl with one leg playing softball. (laughs) I was the worst softball player. And I didn't think anything of it. I was awful at it. I never made it to first base, but I loved it. I loved being a part of a team. I loved trying my best. Um, I loved to swim. I loved to go horseback riding. I loved to play soccer. I just had this passion for life. Felt like my body was beautiful. Never felt insecure about it. So I would call my first chapter Mermaid on Land. Um, and then the second chapter of my life was very drastically different than that. Um, And the second chapter was filled with fears and insecurities. And I would call the second chapter the mask we wear um, because I wore a prosthetic leg every day of my life for more than a decade to try and cover up my beautiful mermaid body because it didn't feel beautiful anymore. I felt like I could never fit into that section of the world that gets to be beautiful. I was deformed. I was not attractive. Um, and I tried as hard as I could to fit in and to hide my difference, to hide my uniqueness. Um, so I would call the second chapter, uh, the mask we wear. And then the third chapter, Oh, it needs to be something with a good punch because I dealt with all my fears and insecurities and just came blazing out the other side. So, um, maybe something along the lines of like butterfly busting out of the cocoon. Um, because I really, like you say, I kind of have a thing for being dramatic and, and 
the the last bit of my life has just been so filled of love and passion and acceptance for my body and who I am. Um, so something though, yeah, the butterfly bust free or something like that. <laughs> I like that. The butterfly bust three bus free. What? <laughs> Uh, like, I love this mermaid. Like, what changed between chapter one and two? Because I want to talk about chapter three, uh, because I know that that's something to really celebrate. But I, I always like to share with the listeners the travels that got to that point. So what was the transition between mermaid on land to the mask we wear? You said the second part was a much different time in your life. When did it start to change? Yeah, it got very dark um, around grade seven. Um Maybe grade seven leading into grade eight. So um, for grade seven and grade eight, I won high jump for my region and I did it without a prosthetic leg. So I would just jump up to the bar and dive over. And in grade seven, I remember thinking, this is is awesome. I love putting on a show for people. Everyone was cheering for me because I was the girl with one leg beating all of the girls with two legs. And I loved being the center of attention and I love putting on a show. So between the track and field meet for my region between grade seven and grade eight, something dramatically changed because I remember being in the change room in grade eight, taking off my prosthetic leg and be having an overwhelming sense of anxiety, not wanting to go out and perform again for people. So even though the year before was a positive experience, I think everybody around grade seven or grade eight starts to feel insecure. And I don't think there was a specific moment. It was just gradually over time, maybe getting more messaging from the media, realizing that I don't fit into that picture perfect version of a woman. Um, And people with disability are not portrayed very well. And people feel sorry for people with disability. And all of these 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 new ideas around my identity and who I was started to take over. Um, and so that year, I did end up forcing myself to go out in grade eight and compete, but I had to overcome a lot of anxiety to do it. And suddenly feeling very self-conscious, is it look funny when I hop? Everyone else is running. Um, are people staring at me because I'm weird looking or are they just cheering for me because they're feeling sorry for me? All of these different kind of thoughts came into play that year. So I did win again, but I remember distinctly having two very different experiences year two. And then when I went into high school in grade nine, I did not join the track and field team. I did not join the swim team because I didn't want anyone to see what I looked like with one leg. And so I went into a very, very dark period where I wore baggy clothes to try and cover up my prosthetic leg. I always wore a prosthetic leg and I didn't shine. I was a very dull, flat version of myself. Um, And that lasted all through high school. So I think it was just all kids get insecure and mine was just magnified by the fact that I have a disability. Um, And it lasted, yeah, it lasted a long time. Because it's interesting. I guess we all do, as you say, we all go through that. And did you, I, 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 you have this one specific thing that it that tended to focus your own attention on it, being like, well, everybody feels a little left out and different at that stage in your life. And all of a sudden, you're saying, well, not only do you feel like everyone else, but you're different than everyone else. Did you feel different before that? 
No, like seriously, like before grade eight, I was just like, I thought that having one leg was what made me unique, like somebody that has red hair or someone who has one eye that's different color than the other eye. Like, yeah, it's a little bit extra unique, but everyone's different. Everyone's got, you know, their things that make them different and and I did not think it was a big deal. I really didn't. My whole childhood, and I attribute that to my parents, they never made a big deal about having one leg. They're like, oh, you can't, you know, do things the way that other people are doing it. We'll figure out how to do it that works for you. You know, that was the feedback I always got. Try your best. If you suck at softball, that's okay. Go have fun. Try your best. So I was instilled with really solid values, which really helped the beginning of my life. The the middle, I think it was just a product that everyone feels insecure. And then I had this extra thing on top of me, um, having that disability and really not knowing what to do with it. Um, but because I had those values, really positive, solid values instilled in me when I was young, that was what gave me the courage to deal with my debilitating fear, anxiety, and insecurity to be able to bust free of my cocoon into a beautiful butterfly. <laughs> and I, I, there's a bit of a paradox here. You're saying people instantly feel sorry for you. And I guess you, you feel that way about most people with a disability. There's this instant, oh, I feel sorry for you. But I also read that you found it a little frustrating that people would also say they found you inspiring, that both sides seem to be a little bit frustrating to feel this instant, oh, you feel sorry for me. And then people would say, oh, you're so inspiring. I read that you said being told you're inspiring for doing everyday tasks is actually demeaning. Do you find that both those things are happening at the same time? It, it is. They, they absolutely go together. It's because if someone feels sorry for you and thinks, oh my goodness, I'm so glad that I'm not that person is what a lot of people think is that must suck. And then they think, but wow, even though you have this awful situation, look at you. Somebody has said to me, if I was you, I don't think I could leave the house. Good for you. So I'm, being inspiring because people are like, wow, if that was me, I totally wouldn't even leave the house or I wouldn't be able to um, figure out how to ride a bicycle with just one leg or I wouldn't be able to do this. And so that's what people find inspiring and that's insulting and not on purpose. People are not malicious. They don't mean to be, but because we have this cultural, very pervasive thought that people don't even realize they have that having a disability sucks, um, automatically everything you do and even loving yourself is suddenly inspiring because you, sh I guess the assumption is that you shouldn't because your life sucks. So wow, good for you that you do. And that is, it's, it's really hard that people either victimize you or set you up on a pedestal and call you a superhero. Why can't I just be a person? Why can't I just be a normal person? And I actually like to believe that I am inspiring. You know, I've competed on the world stage in sport, and, but people will think I'm inspiring before even knowing that aspect of my life. You know, I'll just be walking down the street and people will say, wow, good for you. And it's like, nope, just walking down the street. <laughs> but if you want to be inspiring, come watch me compete at the Paralympic Games. You know, so it is, it's this tough thing where you don't want to say to people, I'm never inspiring. Don't ever use that word with me because I actually like to think I am. But it is for things that you would also think is inspiring for, from somebody who doesn't have a disability. So wait, get to know me. You know, and there was um, 
a woman, and I, I'm going to blank on her name, but she had a disability. She lived in Australia, and she was very vocal, and she called it, I'm not your inspiration porn. And she wasn't a, a Paralympic athlete. She wasn't doing anything out of the ordinary in her life, and people called her inspiring all the time. And she kept saying, no, I'm just a person living my life. I have no desire to achieve something great in my life. I just want to live my life day to day. That is not inspiring. I'm a human being, and I... I would very much appreciate it being treated as such. I am not your inspiration porn. That's what she called it. And it always really stuck in my mind. And it's, it can be tough to call people out on it or talk about it because you don't want to get people's backs up. I know people are not malicious and not meaning to be rude. Um, but that's why in my article, I called it an unintentional um, being demeaning unintentionally because it, it's absolutely not on purpose, but it is tough on your self-esteem day to day when people have a bar set very, very low for you. And what's interesting to me is that you had one leg, which obviously is setting you apart in a very transformative part of your life. You're going through puberty. And also you have this other thing that sets you apart in that you're a world-class athlete. You're better than almost everyone at something. How does one discover, I've always wondered this about like high level, like top of the world level athletes. How do you discover you're the best, one of the best swimmers in the world? I'm not saying best Paralympic swimmers either because you're one of the best swimmers in the world. How did that happen? And how did you deal with discovering you had this talent that superseded most of the, like many of the talents of people around you? How was growing up with that? Did that set you apart as well? The fact that you were, uh, it was one thing to win the regional high jump, but just when did it start to become clear to you and your family that this talent you had at swimming was setting you apart in away from most people on the planet? Uh, well, it, it happened after I had been swimming for a while. I was, you know, like I talked about the values instilled in me as a child, do what you love, have fun, try your best. And I love swimming. I love swimming more than anything else. So I swam a lot as a child. And then when I started to compete, I was doing well for swimmers my age with two legs. So I was like, okay, yeah, like I'm pretty good. I didn't think Olympics, but I thought I'm, I am above average at this sport. Um, and then to discover quite quickly that while I was above average for everybody, I was very quickly climbing to the top of the world for athletes in my disability category. Um, and that was really hard at first because I hadn't been swimming that long. And I thought, hold on a sec. I have so much left to offer. I don't want to be at the top yet. <laughs> I, I have so much like there's, there's more of the ladder left to climb before getting to the top. So in Paralympic sport, I went to the top quite quickly and at that moment decided, okay, I have a lot left to offer just because I've won a gold medal. doesn't mean I'm done now. And so I kept competing against athletes without disability. And also it became about bettering my own time. So at the Paralympic level, it was a world record. And so I was like, I can keep bettering that I can get further and, and keep, you know, pushing the bar, pushing the limit. And so it, I had to transform it about me and about my times, whether I was swimming against other people with one leg or people with two legs, because being at the top can be tough. And you think, well, where do I go from here? Or, oh, I'm done, you know, check. And I knew I had more to offer. So very quickly, 
the gold medals and world records kind of, they were nice and I appreciated getting them, but they became secondary to me feeling like I was living out my potential. And so every world record, every gold medal became a stepping stone to the next goal. And so I was able to become a national level swimmer for swimmers without a disability and also and win gold medals for over a decade because the goal and the achievement was not getting to the top. It couldn't be because I had so much more to offer. And I think that that is an important mindset for lots of people to have because if you're naturally talented at something, it is going to be easy for you to get to the top. And maybe not the top of the world, but maybe the top of your region or the top of your province, the top of your territory. And very quickly, those people learn that they don't have to work hard in life. Their talent can carry them through. And it's just not a good way to live your life. You will never live out your potential that way. So because I was naturally talented and was able to get to the top very quickly of certain levels, I fortunately, because my parents were like, no, it's about you doing your best. It's not about winning. I was able to really push past that point of just giving up. Oh, I'm already there. I'm already at the top. I was like, no, I have more to offer. And so I was really fortunate and I feel so grateful to have had that attitude because now I know what it's like to work hard. I don't give up as soon as I don't win. You, uh, you told me something, uh, I guess a week and a half ago when we sat down and had a coffee that blew my mind. You said that talent is nothing to be proud of. Yes. And I thought, yes. Wow. I feel so strongly about that. And I mean, not to ever take away from somebody's accomplishments. However, if you're going to win an Olympic or Paralympic gold medal, talent is a huge part of that. I know so many people that work just as hard as me, who work just as hard as Michael Phelps, who will never win a gold medal. That does not mean that their efforts are not worth as much as my efforts. And I... I believe that humility is just such an important part of life because we are given so much. We are given natural talent. We are given certain aspects and traits of our personality. We're born with a lot. We are born with genetic predispositions. And what we do with that, we can be proud of. Our attitude, we can be proud of. Our hard work, we can be proud of. However, I think we all need to recognize the parts of us that we were given and be grateful for that and not think that somebody who doesn't achieve what we achieve is not working just as hard. I think we focus too much on the end result and not enough on what people are putting into it. Did you always think like that? Like go back to that first Paralympics, right? And how old were you at your first Paralympics? I was 16. So you're 16 years old. Was that the, the philosophy you already had or is this something that developed over time? Again, going, going back to my parents, it was always promoted in our household, you try your best and you work hard. You, you do what you can do and you can never control the results. You know, if someone's going to be faster than you that day, you can't control that. If you give 100%, that is all that you can do. So be proud of that, whether that's coming in first or last. And so because of that, I always valued hard work. And so sometimes as a child being involved in sport, I would look around and see someone not trying that hard being the best or somebody working their butt off and being last. And so I was always aware of that, recognizing I do not value that gold medal. That person just won because they didn't do anything to deserve it. And so 
I think it's just a matter of all gold medals, all achievements, all awards, all halls of fame. They're only worth what that person put into it. So it's very personal. Not all Olympic and Paralympic gold medals are equal. They are very personal to whatever that person had to put into it. And so I think it is something that I've always been aware of. And I feel so thankful that my parents instilled that value in me because I think I'm able to see so much beauty in people's achievements that are not a gold medal. And I'm able to celebrate that with people and in myself, when I achieve something that's not gold medal worthy, it doesn't mean that it's not worth as much as those achievements that I did win the gold medal for. So I'm just really grateful I have that awareness and I'm able to celebrate beautiful achievements in myself and others that might not come with a gold medal. Now, when you came back from your first Paralympics, you had five gold medals, you had a couple of world records. How did your friends and classmates react to that? You were still in high school at the time. What was that experience like? So this was, that happened in the very dark period of my life where I was wearing a huge mask. So because people at that time did not know what the Paralympics were and they didn't quite understand I didn't talk about it. I did not want to have to explain to my friends what the Paralympics were and to watch the confused look on their face um, to think that, oh, good for you, you're participating. Um, It is about participation and everyone gets a medal. And there was just so much uh, unawareness about the Paralympic Games. People just really didn't get it. And as a teenager... I didn't have the maturity to be able to hold my head up high, be proud of myself anyways. I wanted that external validation that I was not getting, so I didn't talk about it. So my classmates didn't know. Um, My friends on the swim team knew, and they celebrated with me, but in... I had small pockets. So at the Paralympic Games, in my swim club, my close friends and family, I had small pockets where I felt like I was celebrated and seen and understood. But the world in general, high school included, was not a part of that. And so for the most part, I just thought my achievements are not worth that much and didn't talk about it. So let's talk about the movement from the the mask, the the chapter of the mask to the butterfly bursting out. Where do you think it started? Like you went off to university. You also have a, a, is a BA in psychology, is it? I do. Okay. So when, when when did it start to shift? Because I read somewhere that you said, even when you went off to university, you felt your life was still being controlled by fear. Why was that? And when did it start to change? And how? So I had this awareness that my life was being controlled by fear. I knew, you know, when you're a flat version of yourself, I mean, like we know ourselves so well. And so through high school, I knew I was being a flat version of myself going into university. um, It was kind of like a fresh start. I thought, okay, no one there knows me. No one there feels sorry for me yet. I can go in there with a fresh start. So I decided that I didn't want to live my life based on fear, having so much anxiety. Um, So I thought moving across the country, I moved from Toronto to Victoria was a perfect time to kind of start new. So it didn't happen overnight, but I spent my university years trying really hard to not let that fear control me. So 
I started to go to half of my classes with one leg, half of my classes with two legs, um, and be proud of who I was. So it was tough. It was really, it, it didn't, it wasn't like I went to my class on crutches and suddenly everything was fine. This was years of feeling disgusting, unattractive, deformed, people staring at me, having anxiety and doing it anyways. So that is what courage is. It's not the absence of the fear. It is having that fear and doing the opposite of what that fear wants you to do. And so it was many years of feeling uncomfortable and doing it anyways. Um, And it was tough. So suddenly there would be other pockets I felt comfortable in. So going to class on crutches, no problem. Going to the bar, forget it. (laughs) There's like, there's certain areas of life where you want to be viewed as attractive. So when you go to the bar in university, you want to look attractive. Potentially if somebody hit on you, want to buy you a drink, want to get to know you, and potentially maybe even want to have sex with you. And so for me, I, I, that was the, the final fear I could not get over. So I started to feel comfortable being in public with one leg, owning, owning having one leg, but thinking someone could find me attractive was a whole nother story. So while my whole life in university, I was okay to be on one leg. Whenever we got dressed up and went out to the bar, I had to wear my prosthetic leg because that was the only way that I could be viewed as attractive. I would dress up, put on makeup, try and wear clothes that looked attractive or stylish. Um, and go to the bar. So it's really funny how change and confidence happens. It's not a blanket statement. It's not like you're a confident person. It's like, no, you're comfortable and confident in this setting. And then now this setting and also this setting, but it happens in silos. So my goal was at the end of the day to be comfortable, confident in all situations, but it took a very, very, very long time. So now I'm proud to say that I can go out to a bar or to a situation where I'm hoping to look attractive um, and do it on crutches with one leg in my plaid. I don't need to wear a dress (laughs) or I can put on a dress and put on a high heel and go out dancing and, and feel attractive. So that was kind of sounds funny that that was one of the greatest achievements of my life, but to be able to put on a dress and a high heel um, and go to a bar and go dancing and feel attractive, but that was kind of my, that was my kryptonite. That was my whole life, the place that I felt the most insecure and now I can rock it out. So <laughs> it is, it's funny. Like that is a gold medal achievement for me. I don't get a gold medal for it, but I put way more into being able to go out and feel attractive and sexy than I put into winning those gold medals. And I put a lot into winning those gold medals, not to diminish that, but oh my goodness, what I had to overcome to feel confident and sexy and attractive, that is what I'm the most proud of in my life. And what's amazing, what blows my mind is that we, we look at Olympic athletes and we think, oh, well, the one thing they must be confident in is their body, right? Like people at that level, like friends must be like, oh, you can push your body to the absolute lengths of achievement. And you're saying, but going out to a bar was a totally different, a totally different challenge to overcome. Yeah, it was, it was absolutely devastating. And that's why when, when it came out to my friends and family, which has only been the last couple of years, how debilitatingly insecure and fearful and 
shameful I was, they were all surprised because they were like, you were in a bathing suit all the time. And being in a bathing suit and being confident in what your body can do is very different than feeling like your body is attractive. So I just kind of overcame this fact that, well, no one's ever going to find me attractive. So I might as well show my body, you know, and wear a bathing suit and be confident because no one's going to find me attractive anyways. Um, so, but then being put in a situation where you go out with your friends, you're potentially looking to meet somebody that was a much different situation because as an athlete, being confident in what your body can do is the focus. So sport, that's what, you know, sport gave me to begin with was realizing, okay, focus on what your body can do, not what it looks like. And that was a a huge first step in being confident and learning to love my body. But it wasn't the final step where, you know, learning to believe that you're attractive, even if other people don't, you know, and a lot of my fears and insecurities were in my head. People do find me attractive, but there are always going to be people out there who also don't and who would never in their life think about being or dating uh, a person with a disability. So it's not like those people don't exist, you know? And so it is being able to love yourself uh, despite of what other people think. And like, I find me attractive and sexy and, and good looking and all of these things. And so I'm going to go out and I'm going to love myself. And that the irony of all of this is <laughs> being confident is sexy. Being confident is attractive to other people. So when I went out on two legs I was still so insecure. I was not viewed as, as very attractive because I was so insecure. And then when I decided to love myself and to be confident in myself and not care what other people thought, suddenly then other people were finding me attractive. So, you know, the, the irony that I spent so much of my life trying to look beautiful, um, it's, it just worked against me the whole time. And all I had to do was just love myself. <laughs> and so throwing that prosthetic into the garbage, which I did a couple years ago, I haven't worn it for five years. Um, and now I do, I look funny, I look different. Um, and I have never been more attractive to other people because I'm okay with that. I don't know if you remember, one of the first times we met, uh, you told me something that has fundamentally changed the way I look at my own life. And I feel almost embarrassed asking you because maybe you're like, I don't remember saying that. But you, I, I was, we were talking and I was talking about things that I was worried about whether I was doing things correctly because other people were saying, oh, you're not growing your company fast enough or, and you actually uh, said to me that I needed to stop wearing my prosthetic leg because you said anything Anything you keep in your life that slows you down and hurts you and the only reason it's still in your life is because it makes other people more comfortable with you is not acceptable and that everyone's wearing the, their own version. And it just it absolutely it comes into my head all the time when I'm thinking to myself, I'm beating myself up for doing something. And then I, I often will think of that that very thing you said to me. I don't know if you remember it, but do you believe people this prosthetic leg that you wore for other people? Do you feel that? all of us have our own version of it? Totally. And I, I absolutely do remember saying that to you because it is. And so, okay, I, I need to first, before I talk about this, clarify that not everyone's prosthetic leg is their mask. So prosthetic legs are amazing. It allows people to walk and 
some people are able to love and accept themselves with a prosthetic leg. So I don't want to make it that everyone with one leg should toss their prosthetic leg out. Um, it was just for me, it was not functional anymore. It was about aesthetically looking normal. So I just want to make that distinction because I definitely don't want to come across as anti-prosthetic leg. <laughs> um, so for me, it was it was the thing that I hid myself behind is what it turned into. And everybody has that. That's why like this chapter, I called it uh, the mask that we wear. I didn't say I wear, I said we wear because everybody has that mask. And so mine was a prosthetic leg or anytime we cover up something that makes us feel that we make others uncomfortable or even ourselves. If the thing that we are ashamed of, Whatever you use to cover that up is your is your version of a prosthetic leg, 100%. And we have to overcome it. We cannot live our lives based on fear because you will never truly love and accept yourself. You will never shine. You will never reach your potential if you are ashamed and covering up a part of yourself. We have to all toss out our prosthetic legs. <laughs> At that same meeting, I was really nervous because the next day, I think, or the day after I had to go and speak to a grade eight classroom. And I never really spoken to a group of people that young. And it was the teacher told me that it was almost all 13 year old girls. And so I remember asking you, what advice would you give to a room full of 13 year old girls? And you dropped some serious knowledge on me. Do you remember what you told me to tell them? To love the shit out of themselves? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, you actually said, tell them they have to be the love of their own lives. What did you mean by that? Nice. Yes, 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 yes. Don't you like it so, when you say something, you're loving- like, damn, that was smart. <laughs> so good. So loving the shit out of yourself, being the love of your own life, it is the key to everything. And I can say this because I did not love myself or be the love of my own life for a very, very, very long time. I was always, but I was loved by other people, you know, like I, I had lots of close friends and family in my life that loved me, but it did not matter. It did not penetrate through because I didn't love myself. So all the love in the entire world will not do anything for you if you don't love yourself. And so I actually am going to get tattooed very soon. And on my ring finger, while everyone else has somebody else validate them on that finger, I'm putting the word enough on it. Because before I commit my life to another human being, I need to be enough or else it won't be healthy. It won't be a functional relationship. And so you spend your entire life with one person, one person, and that's you. And so you have to make that relationship with yourself the best, the best relationship in the world because you spend your whole life with that person. You need to love the crap out of yourself. You need to be the love of your own life because everything else in your life is temporary. People, things, jobs. You never know when people will come into your life, go out of your life, you need to have your own back. You need to have your own back and love yourself because you are with you the whole way through. And it is, it's just the key to everything. So if people ask for advice, you know, about any area of life, I would always just say to them, love and accept yourself. Everything else will fall into place. And I I believe that with every core of my being, because I've lived it, I've gone through it. And maybe this is where we get to the day one concept then, because I could talk to you all day. But 
the the question I'm sure there are people listening being like how like that sounds so awesome but it can't just be something you snap your fingers and do so if it was day one on someone's journey towards loving themselves what would you tell them to start doing like obviously it's a long path ahead but where do you start so the first place you start is being aware that you have a relationship with yourself. A lot of people don't know or understand that you actually are interacting with yourself on a daily basis. Uh, and so being aware of the things you say to yourself is step one. Listen to that voice inside of your head. What does it say? Write it down if you need to. But be aware that when you mess up, when you look at yourself in the mirror, what do you think about yourself? And I think it's actually, so you're going to feel worse before you feel better because when we shine a light on what is going on inside our head, it is dark, it is negative, and we are our own worst critics. So instead of being the love of our own lives, I think for a lot of people, for most of us, we realize we're actually the asshole in our own lives. We are the meanest, cruelest, most judgmental, least forgiving people in our own lives to ourselves. So the awareness of that has to be step one. And then once you recognize that and recognize you don't want to be the asshole in your own life and you have the choice, you can start to override those thoughts. And we... A lot of our thoughts are uncontrollable. They just come into our head. But the great thing is, is that we have control on thoughts that we can put into our head. So some come in automatically. They're just going to be there. But we also can control other thoughts that come into our head. So we can override those nasty, nasty things that we say to ourselves with something loving, with something positive, with something gentle, something forgiving, something kind. And so the awareness is step one. And then starting to override those negative thoughts and comments with loving, supportive thoughts um, is, is step one. Just imagine what would my best friend tell me about this and then tell yourself that. Totally. Exactly. Yes. Be your own best friend. Be the own love of your life. Like, and, and then it can be physical. I, this is going to sound so silly, but sometimes just grab your leg and squeeze it and say, I've got you. It is so powerful what that can do to you. Or give yourself a hug, squeeze yourself and be like, everything's going to be okay. And it sounds so silly. Or say, I love you. Look at yourself butt ass naked in the mirror and say, you're beautiful. I love you. And at first it, it does feel silly and uncomfortable, but over time it feels amazing. It feels good. It feels like somebody's got you and you don't need it from somebody else. The people in your life should be wants, not needs, because you've already got you. I, uh, I had a student who every time he did something wrong, I'd ask him why. And he goes, because I'm awesome. I remember I'd, he'd show up late to a, to a meeting and I'd go, why are you late? He goes, because I'm awesome. And finally I said, why do you respond to everything with because I'm awesome? And he looked at me and goes, better question is, Drew, why don't you? And I just remember nice. thinking, screw you. <laughs> like, but he said, no, seriously, look, I'd look in the mirror every day and be like, I'm awesome. And then the first time I did it, someone caught me doing it. And that's a moment for you. Just like, <laughs> what? You got a problem with that? So good. So good. Oh, man. I am awesome. It's, it's, and I think like it's important not to go to a place of like arrogance or building yourself up to put other people down. Because I think like 
Because I think um, the word selfish has negative connotation, but we should all be selfish. If your cup is not full, you have nothing to give to other people. And so I've talked to people about this and they're like, isn't being selfish a bad thing? And I don't want to be arrogant when we talk about loving ourselves. And so there's a way to be loving and supportive to yourself that is not arrogant. It's not about saying, well, I'm awesome, so I can be rude and disrespectful to other people. It's like, no, 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 that is going way too far. It is loving and respecting yourself and putting up boundaries for unhealthy things in your life, that is great, but also to be loving and kind to other people, to be able to inspire and bring them up also to a place of self-love and acceptance. So I think that's also an important piece of it as well. I, I honestly think that you've already answered this in some ways, but I, I want to give you the chance to, to uh, approach it anyway. The day one concept is imagine that Steph uh, gets to sit down. Sorry, I just referred to you in the third person. Imagine you get to sit down across from the, the, that girl who started high school that day. And she looks at you and goes, well, tell me three things about the world I need to know. Is there anything you haven't already covered that you'd be like, okay, if I had the chance to talk to myself on day one of high school, here is what I would tell her. So what I would say, to, oh my gosh, I just want to give her the biggest hug ever. It's going to bring me to tears and just tell her it's going to be okay because oh, those years were so tough and dark, but, but it also made me the person that I am. So I don't regret going through that period, but what I would tell her is A, it's going to be okay. Um, B, being a good person is so much more important than great achievements. So yes, we all want to achieve great things, but being a good person, being a kind person is more important. And I think that that can be tough to remember in our culture. Um, and I, I touched on this just earlier that a million people loving you will not matter if you don't love yourself. So be the love of your own life. Love the crap out of yourself. Um, and then I guess the, the final thing that I haven't really talked about would be, you know, making decisions in life is tough. I think that on a daily basis, we're always making decisions. And how do you know if the decision you made is right? And what I would want to tell them about younger self, because I always second guessed myself. I was always like, oh, is this the right decision and this and that. And I would tell myself there is never a wrong decision ever. There's only wrong motivations for making decisions because in any decision you make, you can learn and grow and you never know what would have happened if you chose the other thing. So I would want to tell her when you make decisions in life, don't worry about the decision you're making, worry about the motivation behind it. Are, is the motivation from making this decision based out of fear or love and choose love, choose love every time. Don't choose fear. And if you're scared of something, then do it on purpose. Show fear that they are not going to control you. Wow. Um, actually forget just yourself on the first day of high school. Let's just broadcast it to all of them. How about a question? This is a big, <laughs> this is a big part of, of the work that I do is, all right. The, the intentions are one thing, but I always want to say, take your intentions and turn them into a question that you got to make sure you answer by the end of the day. Usually starting with how did I, or what did I do today? If you could give that, that day one version of yourself, one question and say, look, make sure you have an answer for this by the end of every day for the rest of your life. And she would, what question would you give her? Okay, so my question is going to be a bit morbid. Um, and this is the question that I use in my daily life. Not 
no, I shouldn't say daily. I would say like monthly on a, on a monthly basis. I, I ask myself this question. If you were to die tomorrow, <laughs> if you knew you were going to die tomorrow, are you happy with how you lived your life? If the answer is no, change something. You have control over your life. You have control over the people you surround yourself with. You have control of your attitude. You have control over the decisions that you make every single day. You have control over the words that you say to yourself, how you love yourself, how you support yourself. If you are not happy with how you are living your life, if you knew you would die tomorrow and you're not happy with how you're living your life, then change something. So yeah. So the question is, if you knew you were going to die tomorrow, are you happy with how you lived your life? We talked about, you talked, you mentioned values a number of times. I wanted to, to sort of wait and talk about them here. You talked about the values that your parents instilled. I love asking our guests, what values would you say you try to drive you on a daily basis? Are they the same that your parents gave you? What were the ones that your, you, your parents said, here, we're going to live these, make sure you live these. And are those the same ones that you would say to that day one version of yourself, keep living or have you sort of adopted your own? I would say I probably adopted my own along with the ones that my parents instilled in me. So um, the one that stays true, you know, they were always encouraging me to find something I loved to do. And I've taken it not one step further and I do things I'm passionate about. So loving what you do is important, but there's, I love a lot of things. How do you decide what to do? What are you passionate about? What gets your fire going? So I think I've taken what they've said, find what you love, and I've kind of honed it in a little bit. And what are you passionate about? And not about the things you do, every aspect of your life. Are you passionate about the people in your life, your friends, your family, your job? You know, passion is something I value a lot. Um, So the hard work... um, the hard work aspect of it, I absolutely still believe and live, but that's turned into gratitude because I am so grateful of the opportunities that I've had to be able to work hard, the traits that I have. I was born driven and I was born with this life inside of me and I was born to be curious about the world. So because I had those things, I'm able to work so hard uh, with those incredible traits. So gratitude. I'm so grateful for not only the, the traits I was born with, the things I was given, but the opportunities that I had, the loving parents that I got to raise me. Like there's so many parts of my life that I know I did not have control over. So I'm so grateful. Um, And then something that my parents also embodied uh, that I I very much value is kindness. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to others. Um, And so I guess for them, they always taught me to be kind to others. Uh, And so the the extra step that I've added on to that is be kind to yourself and and love yourself. So that it's... It's the key, like I said, to everything. And when you're kind and loving to yourself, it is actually much easier to be kind and loving to others. 
What's one thing you learned along the way that you then discovered wasn't true? I love asking people their, their cultural cliche. What's something that you might've been taught it, you might've just picked it up on the way, but what you discovered as you grew older is this isn't actually true. I just always like to warn people who are listening. There might be some things out there that you're being told that have some flaws. If I had to ask you what your version of that is, what would it be? So a lot of people will look at me and think, and, and this is a saying, the only disability in life is a bad attitude because they'll look at me and say, look at all this stuff you've overcome. Um, and I would never want someone to look at me and think, well, all people with disability should be able to live, you know, a life of high performance sport and a positive attitude and all of these different things, because the only disability in life is a bad attitude. And that is just not true. You know, I was able to do lots of incredible things with my life with one leg because I had the opportunity, the resources, the determination. Um, I had so much that was more than just a good attitude. Um, a good attitude is part of it. However, if you have a good attitude, it doesn't mean your addiction is going to go away. If you have a good attitude, you're not suddenly going to be able to see. If you have a good attitude, you're not suddenly going to be able to get over having parents that told you you're worthless. So there are lots of things in life that a good attitude is not going to overcome that you're going to need resources. You're going to need opportunity. You're going to need outside love and support to be able to get through those things. I had those things. I didn't just have a good attitude. So I think that it is very easy for people just to black and white. If you have a good attitude, you can overcome anything. And I just don't believe it's true. I do have a good attitude, but I was also given all of these other tools to be able to overcome my fears, my insecurities. And I'm not going to say overcome my disability because I didn't. I live with my disability every single day. I have a great life with a disability every single day. So I was able to overcome the attitude that having a disability sucks, <laughs> but I did not overcome my disability. Um, so that is the cliche that I would say horseshit to <laughs> and that people need to have more compassion and think that, you know, oh, if that person only had a good attitude, they could overcome their disability. And it, it, it's not true. And we need to ha have more compassion for people and not only people with disability, but people with addiction, people who have low self-esteem, who are struggling with any area of their life. Sometimes we need a heck of a lot more than just a good attitude. Man, I like my job. Look, uh, <laughs> sorry, you're just blowing me away. Um, here's, I got to talk to you. You were in Toronto a couple of weeks ago, I guess, even not even that long, to be inducted into the Canadian Sports Hall of Fame. And I got to speak to you shortly after that. And you indicated to me that you felt pretty good about the speech that you had given. Uh, but in the week that followed, I had three people who had been at the event unprompted and not knowing that I knew you comment that your speech blew them away. Like flatten them. Mm. I, I know that you probably can't capture it entirely. I know as a speaker that, but could you just share with the people listening what you tried to get across in that speech that night? Sure. Um, so I, I've seen a lot of award shows. I, I've been fortunate enough to be present at a lot of award shows and, and seen a lot of acceptance speeches. And I recognize that it, you have a platform when you're giving an acceptance speech. So it is 
totally great if you want to talk about your friends and your family and make it very personal. But I decided I'm going to have this platform. I want to make it more about me and my friends and family. I want to make this a powerful message that can relate to anybody. So I actually, I warned my friends and family. I said, I'm not going to talk about you. (laughs) So I, I, and so I, I very personally one-on-one said thank you to them and what they meant to me and why, you know, their contribution to my life led me to be able to be in a Canada sports hall of fame. But when I got up on that stage, I wanted to make an impact. I wanted to talk about something that could penetrate everyone's heart and soul. So I talked about my fears and insecurities growing up. Uh, I talked about the notion of overcoming a disability and how it's just not true and how I learned to live a full, amazing, passionate life with a disability. And that was possible because of sport, because sport allowed me to focus on what my body can do instead of what it looks like. And then all of the things that sport gave me, learning to love my body, to finally believe that my body is beautiful and to have been able to overcome those fears and insecurities. Um, And so I just talked about all of the different things that being healthy and active and being involved in sport gives you. And at And I don't want to diminish the gold medals, but they're at the bottom of the list because not because they're not great, but because all the other things I got out of sport, learning to love myself, my body and what I can do is just that much greater than any medal someone can put around my neck. You just got inducted into the Sports Hall of Fame, the Canadian Sports Hall of Fame at 32. And when did you retire, quote unquote, retire from competition? I retired in 2010, so six years ago. So you retired at, what, 26 years of age. Like, what is that yes. like? And what has got you passionate and excited about the future? Is, was the transition difficult to try to, to move on to the next stage in your life? And what's got the butterfly now that it's bust loose? What's got, where, like, where are, you excited, <laughs> where are you excited to fly to next? Um, when... When an athlete retires, it is a really tough period. It, it, the transition can be devastating for some people because I think we all have this fear that nothing will make us feel as passionate in life ever again as our sport. Nothing will make us feel that alive ever again. And that thought, especially I mean, if you're retiring at 26 years old, you think, has the peak of my life come and gone, you know, (laughs) is life just downhill from here? And athletes really struggle with that and think, you know, what, what comes next? What will spark my interest next? And fortunately for me, I, I found it and I feel so grateful. And I hope that other athletes are able to find this to be true as well. But sharing my passion for sport, sharing my passion for life and for love with other people it, abs- it absolutely dwarfs my passion for my specific sport. And I was very, very passionate about swimming, very passionate. So I'm not demeaning my involvement in sport and what that meant to me, but sharing it with other people, it is just not even comparable to be able to ignite a fire in another human being or to, 
make them see what's possible in their life, to believe in themselves, I can't even describe in words what that means to me. And I feel like I'm the luckiest person on the planet because I get to do that for a living. I get to coach other people and share my experience and my love and my passion with them and to be able to show them what's possible in their life and to see more in them than they can possibly see in themselves. Oh my goodness. I am just, (laughs) it, it gets me going like nothing else possibly could. So that is the butterfly busting loose is sharing, you know, this version um, of a self-loving person with other people. Like I'm finally shining bright. And when I was swimming, I was still very insecure. So while I was achieving great things, I was still living that flat version of myself. And now to be able to be a shining, loving version of myself and to share that with others, I, I can't even describe to you the passion that that makes me feel. Stephanie Dixon, you are a force of nature. It is the way I always describe you when I'm describing you to other people. And I think that you've demonstrated that again here. Like I feel, I get what you're saying because like right now getting to talk to people like you, getting to then, you know, package it up and share it out with listeners is, is pretty amazing. So keep doing what you're doing. Mm -hmm. I, I, I feel so honored that I get to be like this cool little peripheral part of it that every now and then gets to check in. So thanks for taking the time to to talk to us today and thank you for what, uh, what you've done and thank you for, I think this is going to be bigger what you're going to do next. And thank you so, so much, Drew, for having me. And I honestly feel the exact same about you. Keep sharing your story. And it is so beautiful that you are now creating a platform for others to share their story. So thank you so much for, you know, giving my story wings. I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate that. Amazing. I'll see you in the Yukon sometime. Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks, Drew. There's not really much to say to close off this episode except that Stephanie Dixon is amazing. So thank you, Stephanie, for coming in from the Yukon via Skype and chatting with us today. I want to thank all of you. I hope that you had an absolute blast listening to this episode. It was really inspiring for me and really moving. I want to thank everybody who has, since the beginning of the podcast, gone online and left us a five-star review. And that includes our friends 7-Eleven Becca, Kay McLeod 3, uh, excuse me if I get this wrong, Nahel Jarmakani, thank you so much, Sophia Lemon for her post Jay built mostly robot who apparently is actually a person imposter with an exclamation mark and user for past four months. I don't know if that's actually your name or just the way that iTunes lists you. Thank you so much for your five-star reviews. It helps a lot. It would mean a lot to me. And if you'd like to hear your name on the podcast, please make sure that you go on and give us a five-star review on iTunes. I love doing this job. I particularly loved doing it today. I can't wait to come back and bring you some more great insight next week. This is the Day One Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Dudley. Today is day one. Every day is day one. I'll see you next week.